Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Indeed, to eternity, we will love and adore the great one in three. And as we approach him, we come confessing our sins, for he is holy, and we have uh, besmirched that holiness in our living, in our sinning. And so we come to Ephesians 6 this morning, the first six, three verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may be live long on the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. My exhortation today is adapted from one I heard recently from Pastor Toby Sumter in Moscow, Idaho. He speaks to the children, and I want to as well. So kids, listen up this morning. Uh, you are welcome here. We want you to be worshiping with us. Jesus says, let the little children come, for of such is the kingdom of God. And so Paul here in Ephesians 6, he speaks right to you, children. Obey your parents in the Lord. So we want you to participate with us, to sing as much as you can, to read along in the bulletin as much as you can. You are important to God, and we need your voices to join with us. So uh, God's word calls you to obey your parents, to do what they ask you to do, right away, all the way, cheerfully. So if you wait and do one more thing that you want to do before doing what mom asks, then you aren't obeying. If you start what they say but don't finish it, you disobeyed. If you roll your eyes and complain, you're sinning. When your parents ask you to do something, they usually have a good reason why. They aren't just being mean to you, they're helping you. They're, uh, they're doing what God wants them to do by directing you. So if you can think of times when you've disobeyed your parents, then take this moment of silence after our prayer of confession and tell God about it. Admit that it was wrong. And later today, maybe on the way home in the car, Tell your parents about it too and ask their forgiveness. At this time, let's confess our sins before God. Please kneel if you are able and we'll pray. Let's pray before we turn to our sermon text. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that we have been reading. Thank you for the clear and dramatic description of Jesus Christ that it gives us. Lord, we have read of fiery streams issuing forth from thrones and burning eyes like fire and a voice like many waters. Lord, sometimes these are familiar phrases that simply wash over us and we forget the power and the majesty that is uh, your being, your Son, and your Spirit. Forgive us, Father, for our uh, apathy. Restore to us a renewed understanding of your word and of uh, your reality. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do this as we read your word again, as we uh, meditate upon it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 5 is our sermon text. We're continuing in the Gospel of John. 
Last week was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in the first 15 verses. And now we get the Jews' response to that and Jesus' response to them. Let's read God's infallible word once again. John 5, beginning at verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it now. I often have a hard time with the sermon titles. Uh, This one, though, really uh, suits us well. Who do you think you are? That if you want to bumper sticker kind of summary of the message today. That's it. Uh, The Jews uh, saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus giving a very long answer to that, (laughs) and and a very clear one as well. Uh, There's a scene in a movie that I like where the ultra-rich main character walks into the Manhattan office building that he owns, strolls to the private elevator. There's a couple of security guards there making sure nobody goes there that's not supposed to. But there's a new guard there with his friend, Rich, rich guy stands there kind of expectantly, a little too close, like, let me through, it's my elevator. And the new guy says with disdain, what do you think, you own the building or something? And the old security guard who knows the guy, Charlie, is like, sorry, sir. And he kind of pushes him out of the way. And the guy says, what are you doing? He says, he does own the building. And he kind of smiles and walks on and lets him through. That's the idea in our passage today. He does own the building. The Jewish leaders in the temple, they're stopping, they're opposing Jesus because he broke their add-on Sabbath rule. But Jesus acts here like he owns the place, because he does. He does. And so our sermon theme there we see in the outline, Jesus claims divine privilege. 
Uh, he defends his Sabbath healing by asserting divine authority, and he calls us to honor him. So let's consider this verse by verse. Uh, in verse 16, we have the charge uh, that the Jews bring against him. They're persecuting him. They're seeking to kill him because he was healing on the Sabbath. And what we really have here in this text is Jesus' defense of that. And his defense uh, doesn't have much to do with uh, discussion of Sabbath rules and regulations. He doesn't get into that. He simply says, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you who I am. And so roughly speaking, verse 17 to 23, we have Jesus in relation to the Father. And then verses 24 to 29, Jesus in relation to us. And that's really key. Who is Jesus in relationship to other people? That's, that's a general rule. That's how we define ourselves. We're defined mainly by our relationships. Right? Our relationship to God defines us, first of all. Also, our relationship to our parents, to our siblings, to our spouse, to our friends. This is, this is true for any being, and it's true for Jesus as well. So the first thing he says in verse 17 is, I am united to the Father. My father is working, has been until now, and I have been working. So that's enough, verse 18, to set the Jews off even more. Now you're making yourself equal with God. We don't see this quite so clearly. If we just read that on the face of it, well, okay, God's working and we're working too. That doesn't make us equal, does it? Well, he's, he's claiming that he is the father and that he is, the father has been working until now. This means from the beginning of the world. Right? My father's been working from the beginning of the world. I've been working, and he really is implying there, I've been working along with him. Right? I've been working along with him. It's not our kind of work where our work is dependent on God's. Right? We, we, need, we need strength from God and, and understanding to do our work, or we can't do anything. Jesus is simply saying, my father's been working, I'm working along with him. In tandem, you could say. Proverbs 8 is a good place to go to understand this better, where uh, wisdom is extolled and w- wisdom personified speaks and says that I was beside the Creator at the beginning. I was, as a master craftsman, I was there. That's Jesus speaking. So he's describing his work as parallel with God's. And so we have an application here as far as Sabbath goes. Jesus doesn't go into this directly, but uh, let me to go here for just a couple of sentences. Uh, at the heart of Sabbath rest is not a lack of activity, a, a physical rest from work. But that's not the core of Sabbath rest because uh, Jesus is working on the Sabbath, just as God himself. On the first Sabbath, the seventh day of creation, God worked to sustain his creation, and he rested. If he didn't work to sustain his creation, it would have gone out in a blink. Right? God is always working, always sustaining his creation on that level. Of course, in a, in a paradoxical kind of way, he also is resting on that day to set it apart, to sanctify it. So when the Lord's day rolls around for us, there's a different kind of activity that we are doing than other days. Centered on worship of God, fellowship with his people, uh, rest comes as well. Uh, But we have to be careful not to absolutize the physical rest. That's what the Jews were doing. Hey, no healing on the Sabbath. That's work. Uh, Don't do that kind of activity. That's work. That's violating. It's not about a certain kind of physical exertion. It's about setting the day apart uh, for the Lord. 
So uh, many use this kind of excuse to do what they want on Sundays. I don't know if you've come across this before or even tried to make this argument yourself before. Right? The objection goes like this. How on earth is it restful to have to get up early on Sunday and get my family dressed and get to church by 10 o'clock? How, how is this a day of rest? Right? All of us have had that kind of feeling from time to time, I'm sure. Or uh, how would it be uh, restful to invite people over after church? You know, in our, in our self-interest, we often think of these things as ruining our rest more than giving rest to others, which they're doing. We're, we're giving rest to others as well. So again, if you absolutize the physical rest idea, you wind up in, in bad places where, where we're actually violating the, the heart of the Sabbath. So Jesus is working uh, as his father is working uh, uh, until now, from the beginning until now. So he's, he's uh, talking about a union with his father, and he's talking about what Sabbath really is. Well, the Jews, again, are, are more and more infuriated in verse 18. And so then we get the long answer here from verse 19 on. And it begins here, verse 19 through 22, uh, with uh, four because statements. So Jesus now starts to explain. He gives four reasons. And these get into who he is again. But you, you'll see that, uh, I think, in both New King James and English Standard, I think you've got a F-O-R word, four, four times. Uh, so in verse 19 is the first one. For whatever he does, the son also does. So that's the first one. We'll just take these one at a time briefly. Uh, Jesus does what the Father does. That's the first thing he says in verse 19. The Son can do nothing of himself. He only does what he sees the Father do. More union, working in sync is, is the idea here. Uh, we'll get to this later again, but when he says the Son can do nothing, you know, he's talking about unity of purpose with the Father. This is not a, a strict logical statement of the Son is powerless without the Father. Uh, we don't really want to go there. I'll talk about that later. It's not that so much as the Son is unwilling to step outside of the Father's will. The Son can do nothing but what he sees the Father do. Because that means the Son's going to submit to the Father's uh, will and plan. That's, that's the, the idea here. If you turn uh, back to number 16, or, or consider with me Moses there, this is the incident of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And when they rebelled against Moses... Moses said this in Numbers 16, 28, The Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. The wording is so similar between that and what Jesus says here. I think Jesus might be hinting at this incident. So he's hinting that the rulers who are challenging him are in the position of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, those rebels. And he's, and he's saying, the Father has sent me, and I'm doing what he's asked me to do. That's what Moses said to, to those who rebel as well. So you've got here an exact coordination of their actions, father and son, working together, the son doing what he sees the father doing. So the, that leads us to the next uh, four statement, verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. Okay, that kind of logically follows. If, if the son's going to do what he sees the father doing, the father has to show him what he's doing. The Father has to reveal the plan. That's what he's talking about. So again, they're completely in sync. They're singing from the same sheet of music. The Son stands with the Father in attitude and in work toward men, toward mankind. The, the Son and the Father are together on this. 
Uh, two two uh, notes on that verse, one theological and one more application. The theological thing here is that we often get the idea that Jesus is the one who, um, who gets the Father to change his mind, right? The Father is angry because he is holy and just. Jesus is the compassionate one, and he intercedes with the Father and gets the Father to change his mind and have mercy on us. You have to watch out for that error. That's not what's going on, and this verse explains that, right? The father shows his son the plan, and the son agrees, right? So the father has the whole plan in mind all along. Yes, the father is holy and just, but the father also has a plan to send the son to have compassion on us and pay for our sins for us. That's all the father's plan. And the son says yes to all of it. The son first says your righteousness needs to be vindicated. Their sins need to be paid for. The son says that as well. It's not like the father is the, the vindictive one and the son is the compassionate one. You have to get that picture out of our minds. They're singing from the same sheet of music here. That's the theological note. The application for us, I think, comes at the end, well, in verse 20, the son shows him all things that he does, that he himself does. The Father loves the Son. So when you love someone, and this goes for father to son, this goes for any, any other relationship. When you love someone, you show them all things that he himself does. Do, whatever the grammar was there. You show them what you're doing. You tell them why. You talk to one another when there is a relationship of love. We're made in the image of God. And a sign of our love is when we open our heart and our thoughts to each other, when we show each other our desires with our words and with our actions. So that applies to the father and the son. The father loves the son, so he shows him what he's doing. Same for us. Parents love their children, so they show them what they're doing. Dad takes the sons out on a Saturday morning, and we do this in the yard. This is why. This is what we're doing here. And husband to wife, the same. And, and so we, we share our lives with each other. Uh, let's move on. That's the second uh, four statement. The father shows the son his work. The third one is verse 21. And now Jesus starts upping the ante. As the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. Ah, now Jesus is starting to get uh, into some uh, tougher waters. Jesus says, I raise the dead, or I will raise the dead. I'm going to give life to who I want to. Now, a basic axiom of those who know the Bible is that God alone makes alive. God alone can give life, right? Deuteronomy 32, 39 is one place to go for that. First Samuel 2 as well. Jesus is saying that he can give life. Here you've got another one of these subtle arguments that Jesus is saying he's God, where I keep coming back to the the cultists who were at my front door who told me that there's no place in the New Testament that it says Jesus is God. But it's all over when you, when you start looking. And here's another example. It's, it's the logical syllogism again, right? Only God raises the dead. Jesus raises the dead. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's the argument here. Uh, so... Now, I find it fascinating that in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has not raised anyone from the dead yet. So uh, you have here what I like to call the Babe Ruth moment. Right? You remember the, the classic, iconic moment when Babe Ruth 
steps out of the batter's box and he points to the left field bleachers and then he knocks it out of the park or right where he just pointed. That's, that's the kind of moment that you have here. Jesus says, I raise the dead. I give life to whoever I want to. And not five, six chapters later in the Gospel of John, he calls Lazarus forth out of the grave. Jesus raises the dead. So that's the third uh, statement of, of the because here. Uh, why is it that Jesus is doing these things? Uh, why is it that, that he can uh, claim such authority? Because the Father is in union with him, because the Father shows him uh, his work, because one of those works is that he raises the dead. And the last one, verse 22, uh, the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. There's a reason to, to defer to Christ's judgment on this. God the Father has deferred uh, to the Son's judgment and given that authority to him. The Father wants to honor the Son, so he's given him all authority to judge. Wow. Well, yes, this makes sense. If you're going to talk about resurrection, what comes right after resurrection in the Bible? The judgment at the end, right? Right on the heels of resurrection is judgment. Everyone knows only God is the judge. Well, Jesus, it turns out, is the one given judgment. Acts 17, 31, the apostles, uh, when they're preaching Christ, uh, this is Paul on Mars Hill. He says that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So there you have Paul appealing to the universal idea of judgment. Right? The, the Athenians on Mars Hill they understood that there would be a judgment by God. And so Paul speaks to that and says, God's appointed a certain man to, do, to be in charge of that. We know because he raised him from the dead. Jesus is the one who judges. We say this every week in the Apostles' Creed. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. So the Father gives this authority to judge to the Son. If you sneak down to verse 27, there's a bit more on this there. That as the Father raises the dead... I'm in the wrong verse. Verse 27. Uh, the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now here you get into some more interesting waters. The Son of Man phrase uh, just kind of rolls off our backs. So it's very familiar to us. Uh, but that brings to mind, for the Jew, Daniel chapter 7. One like the Son of Man comes. He comes to the Ancient of Days. Uh, Jesus here is making a direct claim to be the figure from Daniel 7. And it fits right in. In Daniel, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and, and he's given all authority. That's exactly what Jesus has been talking about here. The Father gives the Son authority to judge, to raise the dead. That's what Jesus is saying. I am that Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. John describes it again in Revelation 1, and he uses the same phrase. John turns around and he sees one like the Son of Man. He's referring to Daniel 7. So in verse 28, when Jesus, right after he uses the Son of Man phrase, the very next thing he says is, do not marvel at this. Well, yeah, because they would be marveling by this point. But you're telling me that the figure of Daniel 7 is standing right in front of me right now, arguing in the temple? This guy who just broke our rules about healing on the Sabbath? 
this is the Son of Man? Don't marvel at this. Why? Verse 28. And, and this is one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. Don't marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Astounding. This is the one who's been given power. Remember the psalm that says the voice of the Lord is powerful? That, that, that's the voice of Jesus, which at the end of time will be powerful to raise everyone from their graves at the, at the word, the command of Jesus. Wow. Come back to that in a moment. There's also verse 26 to consider where Jesus says, As the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So again, Jesus here makes another statement about who he is. Uh, I have life in myself. I am not dependent. Right? There's only one being in the world that's self-existent, whose existence isn't dependent on, on God, and that's, that's God himself. And Jesus claims that attribute for himself. I, too, am self-existent. And Jesus is as self-existent as the Father. If you see the uh, words for kids uh, in the sermon outline, one of those is actually a word for all of us today, and that's the word aseity. Maybe you see it there, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That's your theological word for the day. It, it simply means from self. So, so aseity means someone who exists on their own. And, and so we speak in theological terms of the aseity of the Son. The Son of God, Jesus, exists on his own from himself. Now, th this gets tricky because we also believe that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, right? That Jesus is of the same substance with the Father, and one attribute of that essence, divine essence, is that he's self-existent. So Jesus, as God, is self-existent. But it's also true that Jesus, as the Son of God, is eternally begotten of the Father. This is getting deep. It's a deep mystery I don't claim to understand this. I'm just telling you at this point. We uh, read just recently uh, a C.S. Lewis essay about this. He tries to give a picture to help understand it. He says, if you think of a, a book on top of another book uh, on a table, and if you think of that being there forever, that's kind of the idea, right? The, the book underneath is the Father. The book on top resting on that book is the Son, right? The Son's resting on the Father in that way, eternally begotten of but also, they've been there forever, and both books are, uh, are self-existent. I don't know if that helps any at all, but it's, it is difficult to understand. But we need to maintain the idea that Jesus is self-existent, even as he's also eternally begotten of the Father. So we'll uh, look into that more uh, in a moment. But this is Jesus in relation to the Father. The Son is united with the Father in purpose. He does what the Father does. They're working in tandem. The Father shows him everything. He gives him great authority. That's kind of a summary of where we've been so far. Uh, the, the Son is sent into the world, verse 23 as well. So now let's consider Jesus in relation to mankind. And we've done a bit of that already in verse 28. I jumped ahead because it's one of my favorite verses. But uh, verse 25, let's begin there. At verse 25, I say to you most assuredly, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So the Son, Jesus, is going to call the dead from their graves. 
Now, in the first instance, I think Jesus is talking here about a spiritual resurrection that's already happened. Right? He, he uses that phrase, and now is. The hour is coming, and now is. Right. When we were dead in sin, Ephesians 2 says, God made us alive. Right? So, so this means he's, he's talking about something present, something already happening. Jesus has already called us to life. He's given us a new heart, a new life in that way. And there's also the universal resurrection at the end at verse 28. And you have a contrast there with with the the present new life we've been given. Uh, The present resurrection already happening. Uh, Only those who hear respond, right? Uh, Jesus isn't calling everyone to this new spiritual resurrection. But at the end, he will speak to all. And everyone who has ever lived will reassemble in the body before him for judgment. It's like at the beginning when God spoke a word and billions of stars were there, and and Mars and Saturn and all the planets, just by speaking a word. In the same way, at the end of time, Jesus will speak a word, and everyone who's ever lived will come forth and stand before him. I don't know, kids, if you remember in Narnia, in the last battle, there's a great depiction of that there, where Aslan uh, speaks, and he gives the loudest roar he's ever given, and he says something like, it is time, time, he says it three times, and Father Time wakes up, you remember this? And then everybody comes over the hill, everybody who's ever lived in Narnia, and some of them go this way, and some go that way before Aslan at, at the gate, at the door. It's a great depiction of this very thing we're talking about. So we have here the resurrection of the body as well. Verse 28, uh, those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. That's an important point to make. We're not just forgiven spirits, but we're restored bodies. Uh, The creation groans and waits for its redemption, Romans 8 tells us. Uh, But we don't escape the world and fly away as spirits to heaven. God remakes the world. That can be hard to imagine when our bodies and, and this world is such a source of frustration and futility, right? But if we're honest, our minds and our souls are also a great source of trouble. It's not like our, our minds and our souls are pure and our bodies are just mucking us up. No, we're, we're messed up throughout, and it will all be redeemed and restored. So, Jesus, in verse 30, coming to the the end of the verse by verse here, Jesus recaps and says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. Again, Jesus is simply saying here, I do what the Father wants. Not as I will, but as you will. And notice that Jesus obeys the Father here. And in verse 23, he is honored that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's really the purpose uh, of this whole uh, uh, answer Jesus is giving. The the point of all this is that you would see who he really is. Who do you think you are? Jesus gives a long, detailed answer here, and the the conclusion really is in verse 23, that everyone should honor the Son as they honor the Father. And and notice the Jews aren't doing that. They're, They're opposing him. They're out to kill him instead of give him honor. Well, there's a point to be made here about equality with God. There's a recent theological controversy in the evangelical world over the son's subordination to the father. Some are trying to make a strong case for the complementarian position, 
uh, that men and women have different roles in marriage. And, and we'd agree with that position entirely here. It's, it's scriptural. Uh, but they try to make the case sometimes by saying, well, look, the son has always been in submission to the father. That's who he is. Just like a wife should be in submission to her husband because that's who she was made to be. Now, that's true as far as what the son does to save us. The son does submit to the father's plan to save us, right? But we also have to remember the son is equal in power and glory with the father. That's very important. So again, when Jesus says he can do nothing without the father, that doesn't mean he derives his power from the father. It means he's unwilling to step outside his father's will. Very important. So, so there is something of a pattern from this to the relationship of a husband and wife. As a wife, you, you act in concert with your husband, submitting yourself to him. But in his being or in his intellect, he is not superior to you. As a wife, you're a child of God. You're a free daughter of the king with only God as your judge. That's also true. And you submit to your husband in all things as to the Lord. <laughs> so it, it can be a, a bit of a paradox sometimes. But father and son, they're equal in power and glory, but the son submits himself to the father's will. I think what messes us up there sometimes is we have this idea that equality means independence. right? And that's just not true. Uh, one of the early feminists years ago liked to say, uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Right? That was the assertion. Uh, she doesn't need you, is often how it's put. Well, you can assert the equality of, uh, of man and woman, but God made women to need men, and God made men to need women. And yet we are equal in dignity before him. So that's the key to draw from this uh, analogy that some try to draw. Uh, a couple other points of application before we finish. One, uh, the answer to many controversial questions should begin with who Jesus is. So the controversial question in this chapter is, what should we do on the Sabbath day? Was it okay to heal or not? Is it okay to go out to eat on, on Sunday or not? Whatever the, the question is. The, the, the answer to many of these questions should be, who is Jesus anyway? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. How should we apply the law of God in our lives and in the world? Well, since Jesus is the end, the goal of the law, what follows? That draw from who Jesus is, who God sent him to be for us, and go from there. That's one point of application. Another is that Jesus is dealing here with the rulers, right? The rulers of, of Israel. Uh, they thought to judge Jesus, and they found themselves judged. <laughs> As Americans especially, I think, we're, we're used to judging our rulers. And to a certain extent, we're called to do so. Right? Citizens should expect a rule of law, according to a constitution, from leaders in office. That's not uh, bad to expect such things. Christians should expect biblical teaching and shepherding from their elders. That, that's a, a, a normal expectation. That's valid. This calls for evaluating how they're doing. Yes. But don't forget, this is a two-way street. We love judging, but we hate being evaluated ourselves. And with Jesus and his words here, the situation is entirely different. We, we can study what he said. That we're able to reject it for now, but at the end of your life, the bailiff is going to bring you back into the courtroom of Christ. You can't just say you believe in a different reality. 
protests uh, don't stop the new administration from governing. <laughs> Jesus is on the throne. So we don't get to decide whether Jesus said the right thing or should have done something else. He has all authority from the Father Almighty. So our earthly rulers may change. You know, uh, we talk about presidential executive orders, right? They get overturned from one, gen one administration to the next. Earthly rulers change. But Jesus is the enduring, sustaining ruler. His executive orders do not get undone. So when the rulers put him on trial, uh, Jesus says, he's the judge. I own the building. You need to honor the son. And if you don't, you're not honoring the father you claim uh, to honor. That's Jesus' basic point here. So if you believe all this, trusting the Father who sent me, you won't be condemned. This is verse 24, paraphrased. And notice this all brings us back to the Father. See, Jesus and the Father, they have this wonderful thing they do where they are always pointing to one another to receive honor. Right? Jesus, as he talks about himself, finds himself pointing to the Father who needs honor. And the Father, as he sends his Son... Uh, calls us to honor the Son. So that's what Jesus is doing here at the end. I'll close with this. Uh, the, if, if it's the Father that we trust when we believe Jesus' words. We talk a lot about trusting Jesus, and that's right. But if you trust Jesus' work on the cross for your forgiveness, then you're ultimately trusting the Father. That the sacrifice He provided to avert His just wrath, it's satisfactory for the Father. So if you're looking to Jesus to judge and deliver you, you are trusting the Father who put Jesus in that office, who gave him that authority. So people of God, we are called to honor the Son. Jesus claims uh, divine privilege here as he heals this man on the Sabbath. Let us not follow the example of the Jews who persecuted him, who gave him a hard time, who even sought to do him in so that they could have their own way. Instead, let's honor the Son and submit to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your plan uh, to send your Son uh, to teach us, to show us yourself more fully, more clearly. Uh, Lord, we confess that often when we receive that revelation, when we, when we see who you are, uh, many times we would rather go our own way, as the Jews did. Forgive us for that, Lord. Uh, help us to see that our problem is not simply one of uh, ignorance, uh, but also of uh, needing a new heart that is not uh, rebelling against you. Lord, we thank you uh, for, for many of us for giving us that new heart, and we pray for strength in the battle that remains when we continue to want to go our own way. Help us, Lord, to honor the Son, uh, to find ways to honor uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, in our family life, uh, in our employment, in our retirement, in our uh, duties at home. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the variety of ways we have to serve you. Give us eager hearts to do so once again. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, as he taught us to pray, as we say it.
145, our communion exhortation. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts, the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. The mouth shall, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Jesus is the Lord being spoken of here in this psalm. He's the one working with his Father right now, feeding you, serving you with his own life. Jesus feeds us all by his power. Some of you who are responsible for meals in your home, you know the relentless nature of this work. Right? You're always working, cleaning up the last meal, planning for the next one. You have a small inkling in that of the Father and the Son always working together to open hands and to satisfy the desire of every living thing. So uh, we, uh, we represent uh, this sacrifice here, uh, God's ultimate work of giving at the cross. Only on the basis of the cross does God continue to sustain his world by grace. Uh, and now Jesus not only gives at this table, but he also receives. The psalmist tells us that God is near to those who call on him. He hears our cry. This table is a place to call on God, to remember his name and his work on our behalf. Claim it that you might be spared judgment. Praise him. Bless his name forever. Jesus receives your worship here, even as he gives you the sign of life in him. So let's receive Christ and rest on him alone for our salvation today. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.